This is episode 276 of the Two Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, it's Anita here. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to let you know, if you're pregnant and want step-by-step guidance on how to have less pain and pelvic floor symptoms in pregnancy, how to prepare mentally and physically for labor and pushing, including how to minimize tearing, how to have your partner feel confident to support you during birth, and how to navigate a smoother postpartum recovery, my Bump to Birth Method online program is available for you to join. It's three programs in one, covering pregnancy, birth prep, and postpartum recovery, plus you get lifetime access to the program content and bonuses. Bump to Birth Method is my on-demand, self-paced online program where you can learn from the comfort of your own home through video and audio lessons on how to best connect to your pelvic floor and core in pregnancy beyond traditional Kegels, strategies to help common pregnancy pains and pelvic floor symptoms, my top strategies to prepare your mind, body, and pelvic floor for labor, how to best support you and your pelvic floor during pushing, key strategies for your partner to support you during labor, and how to navigate your first six weeks postpartum. Bonuses include expert interviews, core and pelvic floor yoga class, three strength training workouts, hospital and home birth bag lists, meditation tracks for pregnancy, birth, and postpartum recovery. Whether you're preparing for your first or fifth birth, if you're ready to have less pain and pelvic floor symptoms in pregnancy, feel fully prepared mentally and physically for labor and pushing, including how to minimize tearing and how to navigate your first six weeks postpartum recovery, then head to the show notes or go to bumptobirthmethod.com to see what other expecting moms have said about bump to birth and to enroll today. Welcome back to the Two Birth and Beyond podcast. It's Anita here, and today I have a very special guest on, Ella Van Brunessen, who is a pediatric physiotherapist to talk about three specific baby topics, including tummy time, that a lot of parents have questions about. So if you don't know Ella, I wanted to share more about why she was the first physio I thought to come on the podcast to talk specifically about pediatric physio topics. So Ella is an orthopedic, a pelvic health, and a pediatric physiotherapist, and she worked at Holland Blurview Children's Rehab Hospital in Toronto, and now lives in Peterborough with her husband and two boys and works at Pulse Physiotherapy. She has a passion for helping women through pelvic health concerns and also their little ones as they grow. She has advanced pediatric training and experience in gross motor development, developmental disorders, infant disorders, cerebral palsy, toe walking, persistent pain, and pediatric pelvic health. And if you don't follow Ella on Instagram, you can find her at Mini Mover Physio. So welcome, Ella. So glad to have you on. Thank you. That was a good little summary. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you've clearly done a lot. And like, as yes. some, if you're listening to this and you don't live near, near us here in Peterborough, um, Ella is always my go-to with like little ones. I'm just like, go see Ella. Cause like in yeah. terms of, I'll see a lot of the moms too. And it's like, I don't have a focus on babies, but there's so many things that can come up right from newborn. I mean, all the way up through, um, childhood, adolescence. Um, so I thought it'd be good because we have so many, um, expecting moms and new parents listen to the podcast. It'd be good to kind of target a couple of key topics that if you're pregnant, hearing this before you give birth actually will be helpful. And then if you're in that postpartum period, you'll also get a lot of benefit from hearing about this. So is there sure. anything else you want to share with our audience, Ella, about, about yourself, family, work, anything that I didn't touch on? No, that was a good little summary. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Well, why don't we dive into, so first topic we wanted to go into was torticollis. And so some people may have heard of this. It kind of refers to muscles on one side of the neck being more tense. So you may see your baby, you know, tilting their head towards one side and looking towards the opposite. Um, but I thought it'd be good. Let's dive into it a little bit more, kind of why it happens um, and, you know, what parents could do at home and when would it be helpful to go see a professional about it? So I'll let you take that, Ella. Yes, totally. Um, yeah. So torticollis, as you kind of alluded to, was is that tightness in the neck. We do, as physios, often think about it as like that one muscle where they're side bending the one way and turning the opposite direction. Uh, but it can really be any muscles in the neck. Um, so the definition of torticollis is actually just dry neck or twisted neck. So any of the muscles within the neck can be impacted. And then that can cause the baby to kind of have that um, preferential gaze to be looking in one direction all of the time. Um, there's a lot of reasons that that might come up. So one of the big reasons is potentially a birth trauma. Um, which can happen just like in a regular birth. So if maybe for some reason um, during birth had different instruments, forceps, vacuum, um, that kind of thing might cause the neck muscles to get pulled in one direction or another. Um, or if they potentially had their shoulders get stuck a little bit, that kind of thing can cause um, their neck muscles to get pulled on a little bit. Um, and then they, their neck muscles get uncomfortable. And so then they kind of hold their neck in that position to avoid overstretching those muscles. And babies don't have the same insights that we kind of do as adults of like, oh, I don't want to hold my neck like that, or it's going to get stuck like this. So they just take the path of least resistance and stay, stay in the position that's most comfortable. Another reason could be like in utero, if you, if the baby, especially if the baby's really big, they don't necessarily have a lot of room to move at the end. Um, and so then they might be stuck in one position and their neck muscles might be tight even before they, the birthing process. Uh, so that can be a factor. Um, spending time in NICU with the tubes and all that kind of stuff can be an influencing thing, just kind of weighing the baby's head one way or the other. Um, and then plagiocephaly, which we'll kind of touch on later, can also be uh, kind of a chicken or the egg thing with torticollis. Um, and then the other one that's helpful for parents to know is that strong parent side preferences can also be an influencing factor on developing torticollis. So if mom and dad are both right-handed and they're always handling the baby in the same way, holding the baby in the same direction, um, that might lead the parent or the baby to kind of look in one way versus another way um, and kind of start to develop, overdevelop the one side and become stronger in that way. and then look to that way all the time. 
Um, so yes, lots of pieces, and there might be multiple pieces that are kind of contributing to why that's happening in a baby. And in terms of things that parents can do, is that kind of the next topic? Yeah, yeah. Once they kind of notice this, what could they do at home? And um, the first thing is to make sure that parents are watching out for that. So at, um, as you kind of had talked about looking for that head tilt for that preferential gaze where they're looking in the one direction all the time um, and parents will quickly notice that if they scan through their photos and they get that cute little head tilt but it's always the same way um, but then another common way is if baby is having trouble feeding on one side um, that might be something that pops up actually before even noticing that side preference um, so that's something for parents to keep an eye out for once they start to notice that, then they can start, or even before they notice that, things to kind of prevent and help manage are making sure that they're switching positions often. So if baby is placed in the bassinet in the same way all of the time, then often they'll try and look towards a parent or towards the light of the door, that kind of thing. So switching the baby's head position um, so that they're rotating frequently, either every sleep, every feed, every nap time, um, those are usually, that's usually a good recommendation for parents. And similarly with play. So setting the baby up in different positions with play. If you're putting them like on the carpet and underneath uh, some sort of play mat type of thing, try and change the direction that the baby is in under that play mat. Don't always place them in the same position. Um, similarly to the sleeping, they would have preference to kind of look towards the direction of where the parents are where the commotions are, if there's siblings, they might be looking in that direction. So trying to change how, um, how they're positioned so that the stimulation is not always happening on one side. And then changing the positions, how they're holding the baby is also a big thing. So making sure that they're not always holding the baby in one position, um, changing the side, the arm that the, the parent is holding the baby, as well as the position. So holding the baby in like a football hold or if the baby is a little bit older and has more head control, you can hold the baby upright as opposed to kind of cradling the baby all of the time. Those posi different positioning pieces are very important to remember um, earlier on. And then as baby grows as well, we do kind of get into our groove where we just hold our babies in the same positions all the time. I know I do it as well. Like I have a preferential, like, hey, my baby goes on my right hip because that's where they fit. And then that's can potentially lead to uh, challenges in terms of how the baby is looking and turning. That setting. Yeah. And, and then another one that we talk about often is tummy time. So trying to uh, work on the baby's next strength is going to help strengthen the muscles that aren't uh, maybe necessarily as strong so that then they can start to develop the strength to look in the other direction. Um, and that really does start with doing a lot of tummy time to get that neck extension. The lifting of the head, which is neck extension, happens before the baby can start to do uh, following objects. So uh, tracking objects with their eyes or to tracking toys with their eyes. So really getting parents to focus on getting that head lifting uh, would be kind of like a primary way to help manage with torticollis as well. Yeah. And I think it's so great. All the things you described, because think sometimes when people think of like oh and we'll talk about you know when would be a good time for someone to see a physio for it like people think oh the physio is going to give me exercises but like everything you talked about when it comes to little ones 
it's using play, it's using what we do every day. And I think, you know, changing sides, like you talked about with caring, not only helps the baby, but also helps the parent because often we will also see, right, in terms of back pain or pain always on one side. And then we start talking about, do you always hold the baby on one side? Um, so, so many benefits for switching that up for baby. Yes. And for parent too, which is helpful, but I think it is really great for people to hear it's, it's more about the day to day things of how they're going to help their baby versus feeling like you're going to necessarily do like structured exercise because they're, especially when they're little, right? That's not necessarily what is going to be the most helpful. It's more about those habits and strategies. Yeah. And even mm -hmm. with like, people often think about torticollis, okay, like what stretches do I do? Baby's nervous system isn't really adapted yet to be able to handle a lot of stretching. And um, there's definitely great manual therapy that can be done for babies, but it would have to be something that would be done by a professional. I'm not, it, there's not, I haven't actually ever sent a parent home with torticollis stretches because I just find them to be ineffective because you're gonna be stretching into a muscle that is uncomfortable for the baby. And then they're gonna be um, upset and then if they're upset, they're going to kind of tighten into the muscle that's already tight. Mm -hmm. So um, do, really modifying the environment and doing those like day-to-day -day modifications is one of the huge, huge pieces in terms of treating torticollis early on. Yeah. And when would be a good time for, let's say, a parent notices this happening? Um, maybe they try some things or maybe they're like, you know what, I just want to see a professional first and, and get help. When would be a good time to kind of go in to see a physio and what would it look like when you do see them? And I totally understand, you know, we have listeners from all around the world. So for some, you can't directly see a physio, you might have to go to your doctor and then get a referral, um, which I think would be helpful to know this too. So then you can, they can tell their doctor, you know, why they feel it's important that then they move on to see a physio. Right. So um, the new guidelines are actually that Baby should be screened for torticollis at three days of age. So it is very young that um, we want to try and screen babies. And that's not to say that um, these babies are have torticollis, but that we should be looking for that and assessing mm -hmm. for that when they're three days old. Um, so ideally, that's something that's happening, at least in Canada, at baby wellness checks, um, that babies are kind of, that doctors are going through range of motion to kind of see what that is looking like. But then in terms of like, when would a parent want to bring in their baby? It is the same thing where we really want to focus on getting the baby in as soon as possible. So in terms of like the effectiveness of treatment and timeline of that, we know that if babies are seen before six weeks, six week, the six week mark, um, their treatment time takes only around one month. Whereas if they're after six weeks, it can take up to six months or longer depending on when the baby actually comes in. So really it is trying to get those babies in as soon as possible. And the reason for that is that babies develop from a top down, um, top down. So they start with the neck strengthening, the head range of motion, the head strength, and then it goes down from there. So if you can imagine if your baby is always looking to the right side, then they're going to start to develop hand strength on the right side and not as strong on the left side. And then that leads to problems with potentially rolling only one way and more weight on one side and tummy time, all those kind of things. Um, so if you can treat it earlier, then that can kind of prevent that cascade effect with the motor milestones. Uh, but we also know that hardening or stiffness that happens in the muscles 
is not as significant before that six week mark. So if you can get the baby in before that six week mark to kind of work on those strategies at home, then it becomes less mm -hmm. effort, less time and treatment, all that kind of stuff. Um, yes, but that's a hard ask yes. to get in before six weeks for especially like new parents or even parents who have had babies before and then you have a kid at home. Like that's a lot to ask yeah. families to try and get in at the six week mark, but it does yeah. really make it a lot easier in the long run. Yeah. And even like virtual, right. That could totally be an sure. option as well too. Um, Cause I know those first six weeks, there's so much going on, but I think it's helpful for so many people to hear what you talked about. Like, even if they notice baby always wants to feed on one side, like people wouldn't necessarily think like, oh, maybe it has to actually do with some tension in those neck muscles. And so then by doing the strategies you talked about or seeing a professional, it could actually help with feeding as well. So I think it's great for people to hear, you know, keeping an eye out for early on. And it's great to hear about the, the screening early on, but we know there's so many pieces to that, right? And depending on the training that professional has had, you know, is it getting missed? Like what is going on? So I think as parents, that's really, really key that they could look out for everything that you, you mentioned with that. And then let's go into another common, well, not necessarily common, but another symptom early on is plagiocephaly. And so some people may know that as kind of that flat spot, either the back of baby's head or sometimes on the side, depending And how you said torticollis and plagiocephaly can almost go together, chicken or egg, like which comes first. Um, but yeah, if you can dive a bit more into that, Ella, for our listeners. Plagiocephaly is a flattening of one side of the head. And then brachiocephaly is a flattening at the back of the head. Um, so it's not one side versus the other. And the reason that um, this happens is that uh, when a baby is born, the, the bones in their skull are not fused. And this allows them to come through the birthing canal, through the vaginal opening, um, and to have that accommodation to do so. So with the bones not being fused in their head, their head is then susceptible to being reshaped depending on where the pressure is placed on the back of their head. The other piece of this, this is that in the mid 90s, there was the back to sleep campaign, which then was very effective in reducing SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome by up to 50%, um, which is amazing. But then we started to notice that we're getting a lot of these babies that are having flat heads um, because they're always lying on their backs. Then that kind of led into the whole more common plagiocephaly, brachiocephaly, that plagiocephaly because it's on the one side of their head that can be something again that can kind of bleed into torticollis so you want to be um, watching closely for any of the signs of torticollis if they have plagiocephaly we know that there are it's normal to have some differences in your head shape for the first six weeks postpartum and that's where it kind of gets tricky or post birth um, because we want to be treating these babies that might have torticollis very early but it also is normal to have some flat spots earlier on. Um, so really teasing out between like the flatness versus the stiffness in the neck, it can be challenging for parents from that perspective. Some of the major things that uh, parents can be doing would be overlapping with the torticollis stuff as we had talked about. Uh, but then one of the other things that also happened, happened in the 90s was that we started to develop a lot more equipment for babies. So we have a lot of swings and baby chairs. Um, our car seats are now like adaptable so that we can take them out of the car and put them right into the stroller. So babies never even have to leave the car seat. Um, and they're spending a lot more time in these different containers. 
Um, and so they're also getting a lot more pressure on the back of their head. So one of the big things that parents can be actually uh, can actually be doing is looking at reducing time in these different containers that are potentially putting more pressure on the back of the baby's head. So that looking at things like if you're going on a road trip, trying to take the baby out of the car seat for breaks when you stop at the gas station, or like bringing up, obviously not in the winter, we live in Canada, but like if you're going on a road trip and you can kind of bring a picnic blanket to put down on a piece of grass for a break, that kind of thing. Uh, or when you get to where you're going, take the baby out. I'm not against containers. I did survive having two young babies. So I know that they're a necessary, a necessary component to parenting. Um, but just my general rule is trying to have the baby out of a container twice as long as they're in a container. Um, especially if you are noticing that flattening at the back of their head, um, you really want to try and reduce as much uh, pressure as you can. And you can't really do that while they're sleeping. So it's ideal to try and optimize that during their wake time. And then along with that, tummy time. So trying to get them into their tummy often um, is super important to kind of um, offload the back of their head and also increase their neck strength. Increasing their neck strength can uh, also help to kind of get the rest of the milestones going, which means that then they're getting into sitting and then they're offloading their head as well in that position. Um, or even like thinking about offloading the head and getting into sideline, that kind of thing. Um, so kind of working on that tummy time is a precursor to that, that moment as well. Getting out of the containers as much as possible. You can still put your baby in a container to go pee or cook dinner or anything like that. But trying to optimize time outside of the containers during baking hours and then uh, really focusing on tummy time. Yeah. And I was curious your thoughts on or how that would work in terms of the helmets, because I'm seeing that come up a lot more now, I would say the last few years, um, than I had seen previously. So I was curious kind of if you can share more about that side of of treating it yeah so in terms of like whether helmets would be recommended or helpful yeah or... yeah and even if is there certain ages and yeah is it helpful and kind of how all that works yeah so helmets definitely have a role um and probably the reason that we see it emerging more is again like the back to sleep campaign i'm gonna sound old but was only 30 years ago so we are still kind of developing these technologies and they're changing for um, dealing with these flat-headed head um, symptoms that babies are getting now. Um, so that's something that's kind of like still in the works and still evolving, that kind of thing. But in terms of knowing when a baby needs a helmet, it is something that like a physio can take a look and have maybe an idea of like, okay, this is a significant uh, flattening or plagiocephaly, uh, brachiocephaly that would require further intervention. But really getting some imaging done is the best option. So going to an orthotist to have 3D imaging done. Um, and that should, I shouldn't say should, that is um, available in a lot of locations. We're lucky to have that in Peterborough as well to kind of be able to go and have a 3D scan of the head to see how severe is it. And then they can monitor to see the progress of it and whether babies need to have a helmet or not. Um, the growth plates don't use until 18 months. And the ideal time frame is actually looking at around the four months to start that assessment and see whether a baby would require a helmet or not. When you start to get into like eight months, nine months, then it can be uh, a longer period to treat and it can be questionable whether you'll get that full resolution of the flat spot. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I think the conflict becomes like, is the helmet necessary or is it cosmetic? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's certainly cases where it is cosmetic, um, which is fine. Like if you have the coverage to do that and the ability to do that, cosmetic can also fall into like, yes, my baby has some head flattening, but also does that change how their helmets fit when they're older? Like, does that mean that their bike helmet doesn't like have the same fit and is it as safe? Um, or do they wear glasses and then are their glasses like lopsided on their face because mm-hmm. their ears are slightly off and their eyes are slightly off. So those are cos- cosmetic technically, but like, I don't know, they're also kind of important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think knowing the, the degree of it and having that 3D imaging, if it's a bit available to you, can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and a physio can kind of help to screen up like, yeah, you should probably get that to see whether you're a helmet candidate or let's see how this goes and see how you progress with just doing these exercises, physio, like recommendation, education, that kind of stuff. Nice. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. Cause I think said like, yeah, we have seen more of that and it makes sense with the back to sleep campaign. And I just think parents just have a lot of questions around does my child need that and that. So I think that was really helpful. And with both torticollis and plagiocephaly, we've talked a bit about tummy time that has come up right with both. So if you can dive a bit more into that, because I know, again, I I wish there was more of that talked about like really early on, but I know there's a lot involved, like when, after you give birth, in terms of not all the information you need often gets shared. And so if, if parents really understood like how important tummy time was, even just hearing what you just talked about with those two symptoms, a lot of parents will see like, okay, that makes sense why I'm doing tummy time. Um, But kind of like different strategies they could use around it if their baby doesn't love being on their floor in their tummy. Um, And also what are kind of lengths of time that parents are looking for? Yeah, Um, that is a good question. That's a question that I answer regularly. Yeah, yeah. so tummy time is... Uh, something that ideally you're starting right away. So mm-hmm. trying to get baby, even like in the hospital, have the baby lying on your chest and that is tummy time because they're on their tummy. Uh, but trying to really start that as soon as possible helps to reduce kind of that like sensory overload for the baby um, and helps to just make it more normal for them so that they have like easier time with that as they move forward. But that's going to be really small increments of time when you're starting. So it might be like, you put the baby down and maybe they're there for 30 seconds or a minute. Um, and that that's all that they can tolerate. When their baby is born, the head is like a quarter of the size of their body. So that's a lot to lift as well. So kind of knowing like, okay, yeah, like that's a lot for them to be working on. Um, so a, a minute at the beginning might be enough, uh, working up to doing around three to five minutes. Usually by the three month mark, we're looking at trying to have the baby doing uh, an hour of tummy time a day, but that's going to be broken, broken up over the course of the day. Again, in terms of like trying strategies to make tummy time easier, uh, if we look at um, that idea that like the head is very heavy compared to the rest of their body, putting a baby flat on the ground means that they have to lift up totally against gravity. So trying to use strategies to provide that extra support and lift them up a little bit so that they're not doing all of the work can be super helpful. So things like using the breastfeeding pillow or rolled up towel, like anything that can lift the baby up a little bit so that they're not having to do all of the work can be super helpful. Um, The other thing that's really helpful is that babies love to be close to their parents. So if you can do tummy time 
post like on an adult or, or sorry, on a caregiver, um, then that can be really soothing for the baby and make them feel a little bit more comfortable. So tummy time when they're lying on your chest. If you're in a recline position, then you're kind of giving them that advantage against gravity. So it's like slightly lifted from a full lying down position. Uh, but you can also do it lying down if they're comfortable in that position. Um, you can do it over your leg. Again, that contact with parent is comforting for baby. You can do it in a baby carrier. So having a baby in the baby carrier is still tummy time. They're still working at that head control, which is like the goal of tummy time, getting that next strength. So being in a carrier can still be a form of um, tummy time as well. Even how you're carrying the baby. Uh, obviously, when they're very young, they need that head support. But as they get older, you can kind of make sure that you're carrying them in a way that their head is not always resting. They're actually actively lifting and holding their head up. Um, yeah, lots of different strategies to try. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful. And the early, like starting to do this early, because I think sometimes too, um, you know, with the belly button, I know I've had some parents say they're like, they were concerned because, you know, the belly button is still healing and, and all that too, so they don't put them on their stomach. Whereas I feel like, and I think it was the inner physio in me, I was like, as soon as baby's born, I'm like, we're starting tummy time right away. Um, belly. Yeah. And it's, it's just one of those things. I think it, it's helpful for people to hear also different ways you can do tummy time. I loved using the breast pillow as like an extra prop just to, you know, like you said, when you think about it, if their head is a quarter of the size of their body, like that's very heavy. So yeah. in terms of any of those ways that you can introduce those same aspects of tummy time, just long-term can make a big difference. Totally. Mm -hmm. um, the other strategies that work really well are like trying to make it engaging. So like our babies love seeing their parents' faces. So really getting to their level and kind of doing lots of baby talk, doing lots of expressions, all that kind of stuff. They love that. They also love seeing their own face. So using a mirror can be really helpful. They could probably stare at themselves for a long time. <laughs> Just sitting there on their belly or lying on their belly. Um, so that can be a really helpful strategy as well. And the, the biggest thing that I like to highlight with families is that tummy time really should be like a no cry zone. So you don't want your baby to be crying at the expense of doing tummy time. Um, it's not effective if you are, if they're crying, they're not really working, they're just getting upset and then they're learning to hate that position and that movement. So we really wanna try and make tummy time as tolerable and enjoyable as possible. I'm totally okay with like babies grunting and working hard, uh, but they should not be crying. It's just not effective. I was telling my husband last night, I was like, yeah, like, I don't know, a tummy time is like really hard work for a baby. It's like a workout. So I couldn't really imagine, like, I don't think I've ever done a workout where I'm like crying hysterically. <laughs> so I don't think you should be making your baby do a workout where they're crying hysterically. So yeah, that kind of just made sense to me. Yeah. And I think it even goes back to, right, like, you know, um, the other symptoms we talked about or again, because with what the baby has to go through to come out, whether vaginal or a cesarean birth, right, maybe there's tension going on in their body that then being in tummy time is not only hard work, but is really uncomfortable because they have tension. So that can be another reason, right, to yeah. kind of dive into other strategies or see a professional because that may be why they're not, you know, tolerating tummy time as well. Yes, totally. Yeah. Awesome. Well, if there was a piece of advice you could give to new parents, what would it be, Ella? 
Ooh, any piece of advice? I would say accept all of the help always. Yes. (laughs) I feel like sometimes people are timid to like accept the meals or accept the like help with babies. And sometimes it can get overwhelming if there's too much of that. But um, yeah, trying to take all the help um, when it's coming or when it comes, uh, just to allow yourself to have those breaks, have that time for yourself. And just, yeah, I, 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 as I continue to grow and like, as my kids get older, I just realize more and more about how it really does take like that whole community to help to raise a family and babies and kids and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think accepting help and kind of going with that thought is uh, helpful. Awesome. Love that advice. And I know we talked a bit about kind of where you work and how people can find you, but if you can kind of share it all at once, if people want to kind of get a hold of you, connect with you, work with you, how can they do that? Yeah. So I am at Schmong uh, in Peterborough. Um, so I can be like, you can visit directly there or you can um, set up virtual appointments as well. We do those as well at the clinic. And then uh, my social media is on Instagram, Mini Movers Physio. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ella, for being on the podcast and sharing your expertise. Yeah. Thank you. It's awesome. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 